0: So King Jesus we praise you we worship you and we say God that we would be completely and utterly lost without you your sacrifice your death on the cross your your resurrection sets us free God help us to believe that this time where things aren't going so well where we feel where some of us may feel isolated far from you unable to come together as a community in person Father it's a difficult So, Lord, would you comfort us at this time? Show us that you are always and completely in control and that you love us so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Again, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, It's a little weird, I know. Um, I'm looking at an empty space. Actually, I have the people in the in here in the room looking uh, and sitting in the back so I can kind of look at the camera and not uh, here in the front row but uh, I hope you have your Bibles with you we're going to be continuing in the book of Joshua so we're going to be in the book of Joshua chapter 10 verses 1 through 14 we're reading in the NASB as always the words will be on the screen but I really highly encourage you at this time uh, while you're at home and watching via live stream get out your Bible um, and read along with us in Joshua chapter 10 verses 1 through 14. Uh, on the screen, when you see the capital L-O-R-D, it will be highlighted in blue. Or if you're reading in your Bible, it's the capital L-O-R-D. It's in Hebrew, Yahweh, so you'll hear me read that as well. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. Now, it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Zaphia, king of Lashish, and Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Elashish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up and then with all their armies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war, and with him and all the valiant warriors. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And Yahweh confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of Asan at Beth-Horan, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth-Horan, Yahweh threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more died who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Aijalon." So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it, when Yahweh listened to the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. Oh, one more verse, verse 15, I apologize. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Man, we're living in some crazy times, aren't we? Um. And just when we thought it couldn't get crazier, here we are in a world where something has changed and is different, where something is changing and is different almost every hour, it seems. Here we are, church, gathered I know it doesn't look the same, I know it's very different, but yet here we are. In your homes and in front of your TVs, in front of your screens, wherever it is, here are still God's people. If you look on YouTube and look at other places, there are live streams going all over the place today, all the way from Seoul, I was watching one last night, and then even here this morning, um, all the live streams, all of us are still yet gathered. It shows us that we are still God's people. And the people of God, all over our city, all over the world, are still gathered and gathering it's like we're one of those rare movies, you know, the ones that keep you kind of on your toes all the way to the end, right? Until the very last moment where you feel like you know what's going on, but again, it's the last moment, things are a little different. You, th- you thought you knew what was coming next, and yet at every turn, something different, something unforeseen. In our home, you can almost expect at every hour to hear my wife's voice going, oh, no way, because the news is changing all the time. We go, honey, things are changing all the time. I don't know why you're so surprised. And yet, here we are, still yet gathered the spirit still at work the spirit on the move and the church clamoring to be the body of christ the salt and the light to this world that this world so desperately leads now maybe more than ever now to be honest in this crazy time i spent some time praying this week and going god do i need to is it okay or is it, is it more important for me or is it more appropriate for me to present a special word to the church to deal with the things that are going on, to deal with this virus and whatnot and whatnot. And as I was praying, God didn't say anything immediately. So what I did was I jumped into Joshua 10 to kind of keep going. And as I was jumping into chapter 10, I recognized that there is indeed a word here, a word that will indeed ease the pain, remove the fear, and raise the morale. And as I was reading, a verse jumped out at me, verse 8. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. And then immediately when I read that, I go, oh, wait, wait, got to pay attention to this, because God is repeating himself, and we all know that we need to pay attention to repetition. And then as I was reading in the commentaries, this quote came up, and I want to read it for you, because it's important, and this is what it says. Such is the usual way God reassures his children, not by unveiling to them some new truth previously unknown, but by reaffirming promises already given, which somehow take on special power because of the present and pressing So as I dug into the text a bit more, there it was. A word, a message, an encouragement so appropriate, so fitting, and so necessary for all of us to hear, especially in a time like this. Something that the church, quite frankly, has known for a long time, but maybe has forgotten in the most recent Which means what we need in this time, church, isn't to discover something new or some new revolutionary truth, but to know that this isn't the first nor the last time that God's people will face an unimaginable and overwhelming difficult consequence. That what we have is God's word and God's way of life, a way of grace as we'll learn today. And that though this is as old as time itself, it's exactly what we need in our present and most pressing need. And my prayer is that God will re-kind of reshow or unveil this old and yet important truth to us because it's exactly what we need. Because as we just read, make no mistake, Joshua and Israel are are dealing with unimaginable circumstances. They've made treaty with their enemy. And as we just read, Crazy enough, not only have they made treaties with, or a treaty with their enemy, now they must defend said enemy against their own towns and country people, which are still their enemies. It's one of the craziest things, right? You make a mistake, you make a treaty with sin, as we looked at last week, and yet here they are defending that enemy against its own self, enemy. And what we see that Joshua and Israel has learned, and what we, I hope, will learn, is that indeed, There is still grace in and through. And truth be told, in some ways, I'm excited this morning. Because as I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded that there's these truths that we all need to hear and that we all know, that we've all known, that I think are going to be really important for all of us. It has been so foundational for me. Let me just give you a couple of them right off the jump. What I learned throughout this chapter is that if you really want to know who you are and what you are made of at the core, or if you really want to know what's at the epicenter of your heart, Go through some immense difficulties, and you will surely find out. Because suffering is one of life's greatest teachers. Prosperity, actually, is one of life's worst teachers. Because we have to be clear on this. Suffering has never wrecked anyone's faith. It has only revealed it. Because if we can't or we won't follow God in tough times, the truth of the matter is, I'm afraid, is that we probably were never actually following God during the good times. Simply, we were after the benefit package. And so in this time, we're going to learn what we're all about as a church. Because Joshua and Israel learned what they were all about during this circumstance with the Gibeonites part two. So here's the game plan. uh, game, Game plan. First, we're going to look at what grace is defined very quickly. The second, we're going to go through a brief summary. And then third, we're going to learn three lessons in grace. The things that Joshua and Israel learned that we need to learn. So let's jump right in. First, grace defined. If you've been a part of uh, RK for a while, if you've been with us for a while, you know this very well. You know this thoroughly. But the, in, in the Bible, the forgiveness or biblical forgiveness has three components, right, that are always included. And here they are. Justice. Justice mercy and grace biblical biblical forgiveness always will include these three components and here's what they are justice is getting what you deserve Forgive in this case it would be them being utterly destroyed as it was supposed to be as god had commanded israel for their immense sin mercy is them getting not what they deserve and which in this case would be to not kill them and allowing them to live that was what we found in chapter 9 but grace is giving or getting what you do not deserve which is what here happens in chapter 10 israel defends gibeon against its own canaanite brethren keep these in mind because these are going to be foundational to everything that we do today so let's go then right into a brief summary we're going to focus on the first 14 verses of joshua because in them is what we really need for today and the major of what we learned right But to best understand this first 14 verses in in Joshua chapter 10, but all of chapter 10 uh, total, but particularly here in the first 14 verses, you have to picture it like a movie. We saw this back uh, when they were crossing the river, chapters 3 and 4. This movie isn't a chronological movie. Imagine a movie where you're looking at one thing and you have a camera, that you have different camera angles kind of from all over the place, one from here, one from here, one from here, different perspectives, and that's what's happening here in chapter 10. So I'm going to kind of explain it to you as of this. I'm going to tell you the scene, and I'm going to say we're going to jump to a different camera angle or a different place, and then we're going to kind of go through and understand what the first 14 verses are. So the beginning of chapter 10. Now that Gibeon, a Canaanite city, right, a, great, uh, a Canaanite city greater than I has made a treaty and a pact with Israel, right? Who has just utterly destroyed Jericho and I. This word of this pact and the Israelites and all their things have gotten to King Adonisetic of Jerusalem. And so the scene right here in the beginning is of King Adonizedek in his throne room or in his war room, whatever it is, and then he all of a sudden calls the other four kings to form a coalition to fight Israel. And as they do, they decide that rather than to attack Israel straight on, the better strategy is for some reason to attack Gibeon who has made treaty with Israel. So then the scene now then shifts to Gibeon's war room, right? They're in there and all of a sudden they hear, oh my goodness, the Canaanites, they formed a coalition and they're on us and they're coming and they're going to be attacking us. And so what do they do? Because they're scared, right? Because they know who their people are like. They're, they're not your normal people and they're not going to have any mercy upon them. So he calls out to Israel and he says, this newly formed treaty we, we just made, we're going to have to make good on it right now. And they beg for help. And look at their words. They say, do not abandon us. That word abandon literally means take your hand away. Don't take your hand or don't let go of your hand from your servants. Come here quickly, save us and help us. They're crying out, mayday, mayday, help us. And they cry out to Israel to help. Then next, the scene shifts to Joshua's war room. Joshua receives the word and him and his leaders are going, what do we do? And then they decide to help, which is crazy. Again, if you just think about the circumstances. And Joshua gathers his best warriors and makes an all-night march to Gilgal. And then as they're marching, Yahweh then says to Joshua, Do not fear, for I've given them into your hands, and not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua and his people are now marching from Gilgal to Gibeon, and they're going, ready to go and fight in the next morning. Then the scene shifts, and all of a sudden, you see this prayer that Joshua prays to God. And basically, if you see the tenor of the prayer, it's not really an ask, it's more like a command. And Joshua goes, Sun and moon, stand down. Do not move. Let let everything stop for a day because we need as much time as we need to avenge our enemies, right? To indeed protect Gibeon and fend off the Canaanites. Then the camera shifts back to the battle scene away from Joshua and his prayer. And then what you see is you see Yahweh go off. He goes into beast mode. He confounds the enemies. He slays them with a great slaughter. He pursues them as they flee. You can imagine like a drone kind of floating above and all these things happening, right? And while they're fleeing, then the last bit, the crazy bit, Yahweh starts to throw large hailstones from heaven, striking down the Canaanites. I wish somebody would make this into a movie because this would be like one of the coolest scenes. Can you imagine? If you imagine one of those war movies you've seen, right? Israelites are fighting with the Canaanites and as they're fighting, these missiles like with direct heat seeking targets, uh, you know, from heaven, hailstones come and strike down the Canaanites and the Israelites don't die and then the scene shifts kind of to finish and again a drone kind of overhead zooming further and further out many are dead you can see the carnage on the battlefield and then you'll hear the narrator of this movie or words on the screen perhaps and this is what they say and more died from the hailstones than from the swords of the Israelites and there's never been a day like it or before or after where the sun stood still and Yahweh fought for Israel. That's what we're talking about. That's a crazy, crazy scene of events. Like I said, it's made for a movie. Someone should make Joshua into a movie. I think it would do really, really well in Hollywood. But what you find in and through all this, and I think what we need to hear when we need to learn for our time now and for all times before and afterwards, is that there is a way of life that God wants us to live, a life of grace, and that this grace and this life teaches us three things that you see from Joshua in Israel that I think we need in order to be able to live this time if the church is going to be who it's meant to be. Because make no mistake, the world is watching the church, I really do believe in this time. What are we going to do? Are we going to live up to the standard that we say we love one another? We love our brothers to the point that we would die for them. What is the church going to do? And the best way to live through any time, but particularly a challenging and difficult time, is a way of grace. So three lessons in grace today. Three lessons in grace. The first one, grace ain't easy. Just when Israel thought that they had chosen well, and done the difficult thing that they didn't want to do, which is to let Gibeon live for their deceptive treaty. Even though they had been tricked into forming this treaty. Yeah, I know, Israel wasn't fully, like, it was, it was. some of it was their fault. They were suspicious, for sure. But even though they were tricked into this covenant, into this treaty, Israel has a difficult decision to make, don't they? They have to decide whether they're going to kill them or let them live. Because on one hand, God says kill them, but then they made this treaty, and so they, now they made the treaty in the name of Yahweh, and so now they have a difficult decision. And of course, as we know, in chapter 9, they let them live. And just when they feel like they've done a really good thing and done God's way, here comes word from the Gibeonites that they're under attack from their own Canaanite, now I guess enemies, right, before they were brothers. I mean, it's just, a, 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 the, it's not... I think we have to understand how ridiculous this scene is. Like We can't dismiss it as if it's nothing, right? Gibeon was Israel's worst enemy. They had one instruction, which is to utterly destroy them, and yet they find themselves in a pack with them. So imagine your greatest nemesis, whoever they meet, your biggest hater, whoever they might be, and imagine them doing the unthinkable, tricking tricking you into becoming their friend, and then having the guts to ask you to risk your life to defend them. See, not only did you not do anything about them and let them live, now you got to risk your people and your life to help them against their own crazy people. It's insane just the idea of it. Because see, for most of us, we would say that letting them live is crazy enough or good enough. Maybe this will help you. Imagine, for some of the younger folks in here, imagine that someone says something so nasty about you on your Insta. Slanders your name in public, spreads rumors about you, shames you, ruins your reputation, messes up all of your life. Or people in the business world, imagine that someone does this to you online or wherever it is and messes up your business, messes up your chances of increasing your life or progressing your life in whatever way possible. For parents in there, out there, imagine that someone is messing with your kids, bullying them perhaps, or really making their life very difficult. What do you do? The answer is simple if we're being honest you take action don't you you go especially with the parent example or if you're on the instagram example you go and you do what you need to do to make things right you know what that is that's justice well, let's go with the parent example because I think maybe this will fit. Or maybe like the boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe, uh, you know, husband, wife example. If someone was messing with my kids or someone was messing with your kids, as soon as you heard it, you'd be like, ooh, they don't know who they're messing with. I'm going to show them and give them a taste of their own medicine. Again, justice, giving them what they deserve, a good old-fashioned you-know-what. But then someone alongside you said, oh, no, no, wait, 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 peek, Pete, Pete. I know. I know what's happening to your kids is terrible. I get it but but just let it go like it ain't worth it just let it go it'll be more trouble in the end and so though your heart rages on the inside right you relent you don't lash back you don't say nasty things back you don't retaliate you want to do something but you don't and if you're anything like most people if you're anything like me you're probably in your mind be like ooh they're so lucky so lucky that today, I am being a nice guy. Because the next time, there will be no more nice guy. This, as you will see, is mercy. Not giving them what they deserve. A piece of your mind, a piece of your fist, maybe a piece of whatever it is that you feel like giving them. And in this situation, most people say to you, "Oh my goodness, Pete! Like such, you did such a good job. Like you were so patient. You're so nice. You're so kind. Like how could you let that go? Most people wouldn't be able to. You showed restraint, man. Man, you are you are being the bigger person. Good for you." But what we have here Joshua and Israel fighting to defend Gibeon. It's not justice. It's not grace. But it is I mean it is not mercy, excuse me, but it is grace giving them what they don't deserve. They go and they fight for Gibeon. They extend a tangible act of kindness to those who do not deserve it. Yes, they have a treaty, but remember they got tricked into making this treaty. Some people will say, a lot of us in our world will say, you know what, that is grounds for them to not have to keep their end of the bargain. It's good enough, way more than good enough, sufficient enough that they don't go and kill them, that they let them live and let them go on their own way. Remember, Israel's not in Gibeon either. They're separate. Israel has to make the journey from Gilgal to Gibeon just to defend them. Many would say, no, they don't have to do that. You can throw their treaty in the garbage. It's good enough. You you've did, your, you've did your end of the bargain. You didn't kill them. Let them be. Let them defend themselves. You don't need to go. But Joshua and Israel, go. The way I look at it is for us in our situation... If someone is messing with your business, if someone is messing with your name, someone's slandering you, someone's messing with, your, messing with your kids or whatever, this is us kneeling on the floor, praying and asking God that God would shower them with love. Forgiving them and saying, God, their words, they don't know what they're doing. They're probably hurting on the inside. They don't really know what's going on and they're really, really, really messed up in some way. And so indeed, God, would you extend your love? It's asking God that whatever is causing their hurt, whatever is causing their pain, and therefore causing their action, that he would fill it with love. Or I would say in this situation, if someone is slandering you or doing crazy things against you, you go up to them and say, you know what? I forgive you. But also, if there's anything that I've done or said that has caused you to act this way, then I'm sorry and would you forgive me? And let me know how I can help you so that you don't act this way against me. Now, I know how you're feeling. That sounds nuts. It sounds insane. Why? Right? Why? But this is exactly what Joshua does. Right? This is how they behave. And what it does is it begs the question, of the church. Church, hear me on this. It begs the question, are we gracious people? Are we people of grace? In times like this, what are we doing? How are we acting as a church? It's so easy to point all the fingers at all the people. It's really easy to point all the fingers at the lawmakers, the federal government, our president, whoever it is, and say they didn't do enough to help us. They didn't do enough to warn us. All these things it's easy to point our fingers and say, all those irresponsible spring breakers on the beach or whatever it is that you're finding on the news and say, they're the problem. I'm doing my part. Why do I have to keep suffering and doing these things when other people aren't taking it seriously? But gracious people, people of grace, God's people, we pray for those who do not know what they're doing. We, as Jesus did for us, ask that he would forgive them, that we would be able to extend our forgiveness to them and extending kindness to them in whatever we can, regardless of what they're doing. It's why grace, it ain't easy. So I've always said grace is odious. It sucks, it's repugnant, it's vile. But grace is the way. And we know this because of the cross. The cross Where Jesus died is the symbol of grace, is it not? This is why one uh, pastor that I know says, an ungracious Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction. AKA, it don't exist. AKA, an ungracious, ungracious Christian ain't a Christian at all. Which means that if you and I are ungracious, or if you and I know someone who is ungracious who, again, isn't just letting it go, like mercy, but indeed, going beyond that, right? See, grace isn't just, you know what? Okay, fine, you know what? I don't like them, they don't like me, but it's okay, out of mind, out of sight, out of mind, I don't gotta deal with them, we'll just move on. That's not grace. That would be God saying to them, you know what, they're so terrible, I don't wanna have anything to do with them, you know what, just let them be. Whatever may come at them, I don't care, I'm not gonna do anything about it. Mercy is, as long as I don't have to do anything nice, I don't have to talk to them. I don't have to make my, make an effort to do whatever it is that. But grace is extending kindness, going out of our way to give them kindness and love that they do not deserve. And what we're saying is, if you are not able or unwilling to do this, then you and I are walking oxymorons and walking contradictions, because then we're not like Jesus. Because Jesus had no reason at all to come to this place to do what he did for us. Church, in a time like this, though it ain't easy, grace is indeed the way it is. And yes, though grace is difficult, it isn't impossible because of lesson two. Which is, grace isn't done alone. After Joshua decides to march with his best soldiers, God shows up and reassures Joshua the same thing that he's always said to them. Do not fear I've got you. Can't nobody stand up against you. Now, I think you may agree with me, but I think this would have been enough. right? If someone like God, like he's a big coach, it's like a you know, basketball game if you're playing, and like, I don't know, Michael Jordan comes up and was like, hey, you know what, you got this. You're good. I've taught you everything that I need to know, that you need to know. You're good. That probably would have been enough. But in this situation, you find that's not what God does. He does so much more. See, when the battle is about to break out, Joshua goes to pray. Right, The the scene shifts Right, and Joshua is there in front of all of Israel and all of a sudden he declares this crazy thing. He says basically, sun and moon, stop. We're going to need all the time that we need to be able to do what we need to do. He commands the sun and the moon to stop. Basically the time and the world to stop and God listens. And then right after that, not only after doing that, which is again way more than what God had to do, then God shows up and then he goes off. Like, can you imagine? I don't know what this would be in a movie. I don't know how you would, I don't know how God would be pictured. Is he, I don't know, like, do you imagine like Hulk or something like a big, you know, character? I don't know how. Like, this is, I I know, it's blasphemous. I apologize. I'm not, I'm not saying that God is Hulk. That's not what I meant. Like, just imagine what God would be like in this situation. But God is going around, right? Just look at the verbs. All four of those verbs. I highlighted them for you on the screen. They're all with the subject of Yahweh. Those are God's actions, not Israel's actions. God confounds them, number one. He throws everybody into a tizzy so that they have no idea what's going on. Then he slays them, a great slay, right? Like he's just going around just killing everybody, it seems like, right? Killing a bunch of people, right? And then as they're fleeing, then God pursues them. He's like, oh, no, 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 you don't. He starts chasing after them, right? And then as he's chasing after them, then he strikes them down. And as he's doing so, other people are getting away. And then God at the end, finally from heaven, whatever that looks like, just, just throwing hailstones everywhere, just knocking people out one by one. It's insane. Notice, the author doesn't describe a single thing that Israel does. The point the author is trying to make, even in saying that more men died by the hailstones than died by the sword, is to say that this is God and his fight. God did most, if not all, the work to make things count. See, Israel responds in grace. Defends Gibeon. But let's be honest. If they go and defend Gibeon and get killed because the, the coalition against them is a much better army or a bigger army or whatever, then what does that mean? In some ways, for this to all work, for the grace that they send or they give to Gibeon to count, they have to win this fight, don't they? If they lose, it's tragic. If Jesus dies on the cross but doesn't get up again, mm. What are we talking about here? But Yahweh shows up and he shows out. It even says that Yahweh heeds the words of Joshua. That word in Hebrew means that God obeyed. That's kind of the strength that that term has. God heard Joshua's prayer and he obeyed because Joshua wanted God to do something. And not only does God listen and obey Joshua's words, he fights for them. Which means again, then this fight, as much as it is Joshua's, it is God's fight. And the reason is because God always operates in grace. When God is a gracious God... I think we imagine that he's some sort of like soft, pillowy thing, right? That he's so soft and cuddly and nice. No, no, no. When God is a gracious God, it means he will fight for grace. When you and I are given an opportunity to show grace, to love beyond necessity, to extend kindness to people who don't deserve it, we are never, and I mean never, doing it alone. Again, grace isn't easy, but it also isn't impossible. If you know me and you know my story, and again, I don't have time to go into it in depth, but you know... That in order for me to reconcile with my dad at 24 years old, I had to drive all the way from Vancouver all the way to Virginia in the course of basically two days. In 50 hours, I made a 40 hour drive from Vancouver to Northern Virginia in Fairfax, which is where I used to live. But if you know anything about me, you know that I, before that time, and even still now, chronically have issues of falling asleep. There was a story where I was in San Antonio uh, for a graduation that ended at like 11. And I had to come home that night and then go to church the next day. You know what, the first thing I did was I got into my car and I called my wife. And I talked to her for three straight hours because, as you know, I love to talk. And the only way I don't fall asleep is if I'm moving my mouth and blabbering off. And so my wife had to stay on the phone with me just so I don't fall asleep. Imagine driving 40 hours. And, oh, by the way, I didn't have an American cell phone because I canceled it. And I only had a Canadian cell phone. And those things, for one minute, was $5 to $6. There was no way. I had no cell phone, no communication, just six CDs that I had made. Yes, I used to make mixtapes, mix CDs, whatever those are called. That's all I had. And you had to make this journey from Vancouver, Right, which is right above Seattle in the U.S. I don't know why I'm doing this with my hands, as if there's a map there, right? And all the way down to Virginia, somehow I made it without one time doing this, falling asleep. Somehow I had to explain 24 years of hurt and pain, all in Korean, and by that, in those days, I was terrible at Korean. To a dad, to a father, who not only doesn't understand English very well, doesn't understand me very well, so imagine that impossibility, And somehow my dad's heart had to be softened by my terrible or not so comprehensive words. His heart as a disciplinarian, a hard-nosed father, had to be melted into a softer and gentler and kinder man. What I'm trying to say is none of that stuff would have happened if God hadn't showed up. I'm a dead man. But I went. I asked my dad for forgiveness for not loving him. And I asked him to enter into a relationship with me. And then he showered me with a love and a forgiveness that I didn't even think was possible. Church, we're never alone in our hope and our desire to give grace. Because if we were, then what is the point? Because grace isn't natural to us. Like I said, it's odious, it's repugnant, it's, revol- it's revolting. It's not what we're naturally good at. But God says to us, because I'm gracious to you, be gracious to all. And when you choose grace, I will fight for you. Whatever situation that you're going through, where you need to extend grace, know that you're not doing it alone. It's not up to you. That God will show up and indeed show out. And the third lesson, grace is essential. Now many of y'all might be skeptical right now listening, right? Excuse me. Because I think many of us Christians, we practice grace in a lot of situations, right? Easier situations, maybe, I should put. But for all of us, it seems there's like that one person, that one incident, the one problem, the one pain, that deep inside your heart, you've made sure, you've resoluted to say, I will never, ever, 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 ever carry on to infinity, forgive or let go of that because you just can't and you just won't, right? Like we all have our reasons. For some of you in the world who have been abandoned by a parent, no, I'm not, never forgetting or forgiving that son of a you-know-what. Those who've been backstabbed in a relationship, cheated on, maybe you'll say, no, never. I don't know what it may be for you. There are many others that I can list. See, on a human level, I understand. It's what I used to think about my dad. I love him so much, but before I hated him, He put me through so much, multiple divorces, multiple remarriages, all sorts of things. So on a human level, I get it. But as your pastor, as your Christian brother, I got to talk to you for a minute because if this is who you are, then you need to hear this because this is going to be critical, not just for this time, but for all times. Because make no mistake, without extending grace to all, you will never receive it. That when you extend grace, it is a sign that you have received grace. That if you're unable to extend grace, then what it means is that you've never fully experienced the true and the fullness, the depth of God's grace, and therefore his immense love for you. Let me repeat that. If you are unwilling or unable, cannot give grace, then what it means is not that you're not good enough. It means that you haven't fully received the true depth of grace in your own heart, which means that one thing you won't let go. You need to ask God to help you to let go and to give grace because grace is essential to our being. Now, some of you might be asking, but Pete, but wait, wait, wait. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me make sure I get you straight. Doesn't Joshua defending Gibeon and God going all this way and doing all of this extra stuff to fight for Gibeon just teach people to be deceptive, to lie, to do whatever they can to get whatever that they want Isn't what this is teaching, isn't this teaching the fact that people can do whatever to treat us like trash and then we become like pushovers? So are you telling me that the church has got to be a bunch of pushovers letting people do whatever they want to us? Now, I can understand why you think that. It's a legitimate question and we're not going to ignore it. But the answer, as you may suspect, is no. Because grace doesn't mean that you're a pushover. See, the little thing that you have to recognize is what Israel was doing was upholding a covenant. See, before this, Israel's directive was to go and kill the Canaanites and utterly destroy them. Why? Because they had it come in because God watched and their sin had been immense and full enough and that was the thing. But what Israel wasn't doing wasn't just willy-nilly giving grace. They were upholding a covenant, a promise. And as you know, and as you should be well aware, all covenant relationships are based on grace. Every covenant relationship, every relationship is built on grace. That's why it's so essential to everything that we do in life. See, Israel was deceived. I know that. But they made a covenant. And though they should have never entered into said covenant, they entered into it, and so they must uphold it. Now, you might say to me, well, Pete, okay, cool, but I'm not making stupid covenants with people left and right, so why do I have to be gracious to people that I don't even know? parents out there being like, if a kid is bullying my kid, why do I got to be gracious to them and their parents and their family? I never made no covenant with them. I never got into a treaty with them. I never made a pact with them. And you're right. You never made a direct covenant with them. But if you're a Christian, you made a covenant, and you've entered into covenant with God. And God has offered a covenant to all, regardless of who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. You see, other than the covenant relationship that God has in himself, the Trinitarian covenant, right, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, no other covenant on earth is perfect. No other covenant is kept perfectly. Even in our covenant with God, he keeps his end perfectly, but we break ours all the time, don't we? And yet God shows us grace all the time. But particularly in our covenants with one another, take marriages, take families, right, take jobs, or whatever it is that we do, right, None of those covenants are ever perfect. And the only thing that keeps them going the way that they're supposed to is a continual extending of undeserved grace. Can you imagine a marriage where one says to the other, oh, you know what? I'm done. I'm not extending this covenant anymore. I'm not upholding this covenant anymore. I'm not giving grace anymore. Can you imagine? Well, actually, you don't have to imagine because you see it all the time, don't we? This is how divorces happen. Can you imagine a familial covenant or parental covenant, right? Right? where you bring, right, where you go to your child and you say, you know what, I'm not going to extend grace anymore. Do you know what happens in that setting? Families break. See, I love my kids, but let's be real. They'd be doing some unfortunate stuff to me that I do not deserve. And I'm not just talking about when they were younger, pooping in their diapers, having explosive diarrhea, all that kind of stuff. No, even now, they're doing things to me that I don't deserve. I'm just going to be honest. I know, my, they're watching on TV. They're probably revolting at this point. Some of the stuff maybe I deserve. Okay, I'll admit that. But some of the stuff I know I don't deserve. But vice versa. I'd be doing things to them that they don't deserve. But we as a family, we're always extending grace to one another. Imagine if we didn't. Again, we don't have to imagine. This is how families split. Or as a church, if we didn't extend grace to one another, we would split. And again, too many have too many to count. All covenants are based On grace. But here's the true kicker, and this is where we're going to finish. What happens here in chapter 10 is, in my opinion, the most amazing thing we've seen so far in all of Joshua. And you're probably thinking, Pete, that's insane. We saw the Israelites cross over the Jordan with, you know, crazy things. Like, you know, remember I showed you this picture? The wall stand up on the side, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's insane. We saw Joshua and Israel march around the wall a bunch of times, and the whole thing came crumbling down. Have you forgotten? How is what happens here more amazing than what's happened in those? The answer is I haven't forgotten, no. And it's not that I haven't considered. But the difference between all of those things and what happens here in chapter 10 is who initiates the action. Who initiates everything here? Joshua in Israel, the same Joshua in Israel who felt themselves a little too much and decided to attack Ai without the right people and then got 36 people killed and then Achan and all that happened. The same Israel that made a stupid covenant with Gibeon, here we find them acting the way they're supposed to act. God doesn't go to Joshua and say, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. No, as soon as they hear word from Gibeon that they need their help, Joshua and Israel spring into action. They automatically start to exercise grace. They ask God for his help, and then God comes in and does what only God can do. And why? It's because Joshua and Israel have chosen grace, and God will always, as I said, fight for grace. Church, isn't grace the reason why we're here? Isn't this what Lent is all about? Earlier I said that an ungracious Christian is an an oxymoron, that it's a contradiction. And that really, if you really want to know what's what's at the center of your heart, is to go through this immense type of difficulty and so on. And the reason why I said all those things is because Jesus tells us those things. See, Jesus says if we can't forgive someone, then we haven't been forgiven. And that's not his way of saying like the only way you get forgiveness is to give forgiveness as, as if you're earning it. But what he's saying is, if you can't or unwilling, if you're unwilling to forgive, not only just mercy, but grace, then what it means is you and I haven't fully received God's forgiveness. See, the only reason Joshua and Israel can do this is because they know how gracious God is to them. They've messed up countless times, done crazy things, and yet God never left them. God said, I will never forsake you. His covenant stood strong all the way through. And so they said, even in this situation, even though Gibeon tricked us and there are enemies and we did this stupid thing, we will extend grace. Why? Because they understood it. The crossing, Jericho, I, all those things in and through were all God giving both mercy and grace. God forgiving them. And so Joshua and Israel give grace to Gibeon. See, what happens when you're able to give grace and extend grace is that you realize, as Joshua and Israel you realize, that we are just like Gibeon. To God, we were Gibeon, his enemies. So as Scripture says, though yet while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus extends his grace to us in undeserved kindness, to us and says to us if you accept this you are entering into a covenant with me but by doing so make no mistake you will then extend this covenant to all because it's the only way to live church if we are the people who take his blood and his body and you know what that means, and you do it in remembrance of him, then we will have to, because it's the only way that that is meaningful in our lives, we will have to offer our blood and our body. I mean, you know this, don't you? How do you know if someone really loves you? Is it when they're nice to you, when things are doing really well? Students out there, how do you know if your parents really love you? when they get nice stuff for you or whatever, when you're getting A's or doing whatever that they want. No, no, no. You know they love you when you make your biggest and greatest mistake. You backstab them straight in the heart, and yet they still extend you this grace. That's how you know. See, when you love and you give grace, even when people are at their nastiest, when you don't give up and you extend your kindness you don't give the cold shoulder, but you go out of your way and you give love, then you know that you have been impacted by the same love and grace that God gives to you. Grace is essential. As I invite John and Hannah up to close us in worship. Church, we're going through a really, really, really interesting time. And I hope that we will be people of grace. That we will receive God's grace and that we will extend it. I've heard so many times from different people that the thing that they're afraid of is that people, when they're fearful or they're going through crazy things, they're likely to do anything and everything. And you know what? We might get there. But in and through it all, I hope that we, the church, Christ's body would then give grace, extend grace, and love people. But that's the way this will stop. The social distancing thing that we're all trying to do, we're doing it because it's gracious. Because it's loving others. Everything we're doing is because we're trying to be gracious, because God has been gracious to us. So church, in a world that needs it ever more than before, maybe, I pray and I hope that you would be gracious. First receive, and then give. And I have no idea what this season of Lent is going to look like. Let's just be honest. Gus and I are sitting here, and we're trying to plan. And uh, who knows? We might not even be here. We, this is the way that we might conduct Palm Sunday and Easter service. It's kind of crazy. I never, never would have thought. But in and through it all, we learn to receive the blood and the body of Christ and then give ourselves to others as a way of saying, this is who our God is. May the world know. If you don't know, the number of people that have died in the world is skyrocketing. My heart churns because I have no idea how many of those people know Christ. Which means many people. That's it. And I'm hoping that in this time of crisis that the church will stand on the blood of the cross, at the steps of the empty grave, and that we would offer life And that in all, not only will we stop this and help stop it, but even to those who are perishing, that they would receive the gospel and have life eternal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that even Joshua and Israel, as messed up as they are, that they can extend grace to. So help us to do so. As we sing, as we give up this time, and as we Dedicate this time to you, we pray that you would indeed work in us. Father, we pray that we would be the church. And that though we are distant and though we are doing things very differently, that indeed we would still be the church. Father, I pray that even while we're far, that we would still do as you ask us to do, even in our offering. And we pray for that as well. That you would embolden the church to move about the world. That we'd be the hands and the feet of Christ. The needy, so Lord, would you indeed take all these things? Would you use them for your glory, spread your kingdom? We pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Out there in your living rooms or wherever you are, I invite you to actually stand and respond. Um, I just prayed for the offering; it'll be there. It is on the screen for a little bit for those of you interested, Um, but.